Hey, it's Seth Godin. In the summer of 2012, I had an amazing opportunity to spend three days with a group of extremely motivated entrepreneurs, people right at the beginning of building their project, launching their organization. During those three days, I took them on a guided tour of some of the questions they were going to have to wrestle with, some of the difficult places they were going to just stand up and say, this is me, this is what I'm making. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but I hope this is the next best thing. Excerpts from the live event, unrehearsed, no slides. Here it is. Enjoy it. But even more important, I hope you do something with it. Thanks for listening. All right, so now, again, we're, we're, we need to understand that you need to have the right thing that matches the right medium. If you're going to open a store in a mall, you shouldn't sell cars because people don't buy cars when they go to the mall. If you're going to sell snacks at the stadium, you should sell peanuts and popcorn because people walk in expecting peanuts and popcorn. So when Jeff Bezos and his wife left New York and drove to Seattle, sat in the car and he made a long list of all the things he could sell at Amazon. And the list included music, shoes, books, lots of things. But what he said is, for it to sell online, A, it needs to be something where you don't have to touch it to know if it's the thing. So you can't sell bananas because bananas vary too much, right? Whereas every copy of Catcher in the Rye is exactly what you expect. Number two, it needs to have a huge variety because if I'm going to be the best in the world, I want to be the best in the world because I have every item that's for sale as opposed to some. So I can defeat any store because I'll have all the stuff. Right? And number three, there needs to be a way for me to price it so that the customer knows they're getting a discount. So a discount because he was going to run a low-cost operation and the whole model was you were going to give up the satisfaction of touching it and the gratification of getting it right now in exchange for variety and discount. So when you go down that list, books become an obvious choice because there's basically an infinite number of books. No store could carry them all. Every book has a list price. It's easy to understand how to deal with discounts. And you get unlimited returns back to the bookstore, book publisher, so there's no risk. So that's how he figured out to sell books online. So when people ran around and said, no, 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 we're going to sell fruit online because it'll be just like Amazon. Well, actually, no, it won't. It won't be anything like Amazon. All the advantages Amazon have do not exist if you're selling fruit. Make sense? All right, so that's the first thing. When you're thinking about which place you want to sell, it's what is a natural thing that fits what that medium is good at. Number two is remember that at the heart of all transactions is trust. And I am more likely to trust a store I'm standing in where I can see the item and take it with me when I leave, that's twice, than I am to trust a website that might just be ripping me off. So when you're saying, what, where should I sell it, a lot of it depends on what you're selling. So if you're selling a service, if you're a psychologist, and you say, you know what, 10 minutes a day, I can help you perform better. So there's a couple ways you could sell it. You could set up a table in Union Square, a little sign over it, and people could pay you $5 on the spot. You could have 
a traditional office in a traditional medical building and be just like every other psychologist except your sessions are really short. Or you could have a website where people click a button and you answer the phone and you talk to them and they never look you in the eye. Now each one of them could work for a different reason. But you have to understand the transactions are going to be fundamentally different because our trust is going to be fundamentally different. If it's the online site, it better be free at first. Because why on earth would someone pay 50 bucks so they could press a button and a stranger could talk to them on the computer? This is not going to happen, right? Whereas if I do it three times and I'm hooked, then maybe you could charge me. Whereas if it's in your fancy office and you're trying to project that you're a real psychologist, the thought that the sessions are free would wreck my trust in you. No psychologist would offer me a free session in her office if she was any good. Right? So we're trying to match one to the other. An, an absurd way to look at this is if we go to New York and look at Fashion Week, where they have all those anorexic models walking up and down in all those clothes no one will ever buy. Right? Why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that charade because the people in the front row came to see a show. And they, fashion designers understand that if they put on the show, then the people in the second row, who are the buyers for the stores, will say, oh, this guy knows how to put on a show. I'll buy his regular line for my fall lineup. Whereas if you say, no, 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 I'm just a good designer. I'm going to skip Fashion Week. I'm not going to pay the tax to be there. Bloomingdale's isn't going to call you because you weren't willing to put on the show. So these are all complicated pieces that fit into what story are you telling and how are you building the truth. When I was building my company, I kept believing that one day I would hire enough people that they could take care of themselves, right? Because like you hire managers, and then you think, oh, now they can take care of and But then the managers need being taken care of, right? And I never, at 70 people, I gave up. I said, I'm never going to get there. But then I got to Yahoo, and the five people who were running the company didn't have to do any of that. They had made it, they had built their company big enough that it took care of itself. That if you think about the Howard Schultz example, the mom and pop, well, he's not in this store. He must be in this store, so this store is running fine. But once you have enough stores, you can't be in any store. The stores are running fine. At some point, you're going to need to hire a COO. At some point, you're going to need to hire a consigliere who takes care of all of this. And that's their job. Their job is for them to do the stuff you don't want to do. And the way I describe it is this. Entrepreneurs hire people who do everything they do so they can go do something else. The only way to promote yourself, if you're the boss, is to hire someone who does your day job so that you now have to prove your value by doing something that used to be your day job. That make sense? There are people who are capable of doing the taxes and the relationship with the banks and everything else better than you. So it's just about you giving up enough control spending the money and saying, I'm done with this. But the only way for you to justify it is to earn more than that amount of money with the time you freed up. Make sense? But it's a choice. There's nothing built into the structure of your business that forces you to do stuff you don't want. Right? It's just hard to get to let go of it. I've tried to discipline myself to do that. So I don't go to meetings. I don't look at you know bills and invoices. And I don't have a relationship with any bank because somebody else 
just does that. I never even see her. She comes to my office once a month. She has a basket, and I put stuff in the basket, and then it goes away. <laughs> right? But I've known Anne for 15 or 20 years. We trust each other, and it works. Right? Do, does she do it exactly the way I want every time? No. But that's the price. I don't have to worry about it in exchange. She doesn't do it exactly the way I want it. She does it better. But my experience is this. Number one, a CFO is different than a COO. And a CFO is not a glorified bookkeeper. A CFO is in charge of thinking about money. A CFO for a public company is way different than a CFO for a private company. Do not hire a public company CFO to come work for your little private company. They will drive you crazy. But if you can find someone who's ready to think about money and rationalize the money. I did. I'm working my way up to COO. You do that first. Much easier to hire a part-time CFO. Much easier to say, okay, now the money is taken care of. Then you can go find a COO and say to that person, the money is taken care of. The marketing is my job. Your job is using the money you've got and the promises I'm making, make the promises come true. And then you say to that person, I work for you. I work for you, meaning if I'm making promises you can't keep, you need to be able to tell me I can't do that. And if you need more resources to keep the promises I'm making, you need to tell me that you're taking the resources. That that's the only way they can have the C in COO. Otherwise, they're just going to become your admin. Okay? And at first, they will not be one-tenth as good at this as you are. They will not understand the smart shortcuts. They will not understand the right quality choices. Everything they make will cost more than you think it should. But if you're serious about giving, getting rid of this stuff and you want them to run the army while you figure out the strategy, you're going to have to do that. And the first person and the second person and the third person might not be the right ones, which is why a part-time project manager might be exactly what you want. So you say to this project manager, this one client is yours. Tell me the resources you need. You're the C chief project manager for this client. And if they nail it, then you give them a second one and then a third one. And you keep giving them new clients until they're full. And then they will have worked their way up and you'll develop this shorthand. But the best, I had uh, one woman who worked for me as a COO and then I made her the president of Yo-Yo Dine. And it was fabulous because the first month I felt like one of those trust exercises where you're leaning back and there was no one there. <laughs> And I just kept leaning back, and I just let projects fail. And I said, I mean it. Go. And after like two or three weeks, she just ran. And the last two months before we sold the company, I didn't, no one woke me up in the middle of the night, and things worked better than I ever could have. But it was because I said, all right, I, I'm not in that business anymore. You're in that business. They work for you. You figure it out. And I know it's going to cost more. I know it's going to take longer, but soon you'll be better at it than me. And so it's usually the entrepreneur who sabotages it either by hiring the wrong person or by not giving them the trust that they need. You can call it an advisory board. You can call it a board. You can call it an advisory committee. By law, every uh, corporation has a board. And the board is actually the representative of the shareholders. And the board is the boss. Now. If you have a bad board, your life is miserable. So you have to be very careful about what's its function and who picked those people. Because if you're really self-disciplined, you don't need a board 
to tell you what to do. On the other hand, if you do want to you know, act exactly the way the system wants, a board can be a really useful tool to keep you in line. Right? So if I'm going to invest in Facebook, I care a great deal about who's on the board because I know they have a mad scientist who's running the company. But as an investor, the board's job is to look out for me. Right? That's a, a tough decision. That's really different than a board of advisors. The board of advisors has two functions. One, to give you advice. And two, to make you look good to other people. And you should be really clear with yourself and with the board about which they are. So if I blurb a book for an author, the only reason the author asked me to do it is so that they would look good to other people. And we both know that. We both know it is not my job to field complaints from readers who are unhappy with the book just because I put my name on the back. That's not part of the deal. So if you go to the mayor of Charlotte and say, will you be on my advisory board? What you're really saying is, may I drop your name when I go to meetings? And you should just be really clear that that's what's on offer. And if people say yes to it, you should make a big deal out of your advisory board or else don't bother having one. The other alternative is, is there a group of people who will tell you the truth? And the, in that case, the question is, should they meet as a group? And um, should they be famous? Should they meet as a group is interesting because groupthink kicks in almost immediately. I'm not a fan of meetings whatsoever, but if you've got eight people in the room, many with re reputations, they're not having a meeting where they're actually giving you candid feedback about your goals and your dreams. They're worried about how does this look? How does it make me look? What does this person over there think about what I just said? None of that is the way you want to manage your life. At least I think so. So in those situations, I would say, I want to meet with you for lunch once a month. I want to bring with you my three biggest problems. I want to make three promises to you. And when I come back next month, I want you to ask me about the three promises I made to you. I want you to help me with three more problems. And in exchange, the Cobb salad's on me. Right? If you've got three people in your life like that, you win the lottery. That's fabulous, at least the way I've approached this. So again, you've got to decide what's its role and, and what's its for. And if you end up with employees, this gets really tricky. So at the Acumen Fund, I'm pretty active. And Jacqueline, to her credit, likes it when I talk to her employees. Like, and I say absolutely amazing, over-the-top, ridiculous proposals. And yeah, go try this. Maybe you'll fail. Now, if I was running a company, I'm not sure I'd want somebody coming in pretending they had my imprimatur, just telling my employees to do whatever the hell that person thought of on their way over. But maybe you do. And so you got to, again, figure out what you want the relationship to be between this advisor slash public thing and the work you're actually doing. And then the last part in your particular case is I think because your whole foundation is in the community, I would find 30 or 40 people who aren't advisors, but are actually on the hook publicly to execute. So that you're, you say to that person, I want you to sell a table at this gala, but it's the equivalent of that online. Because when you, someone's on the hook to sell a table, they sell the table. Because they'd rather sell the table, buy the tickets themselves if they have to, than admit they failed. That's really different than saying, will you support the gala? So what's the equivalent of, can I put your name on the invitation? Can I, put, can I mark you off for bringing 10 other influential people in? That's the first thing I would do when I got back to Charlotte.
Thank you for listening to the Startup School with Seth Godin. To learn more about Seth or to subscribe to his daily blog, please visit sethgodin.com. You can also find his books in any bookstore or on amazon.com. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Aukerman. For more information, visit Earwolf.com.